Futurize goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Undheim, futurist and author. In episode 87 of the podcast, the topic is performance food. Our guest is Lucy Gable, nutritionist and adjunct professor at San Jose State University and author of Eat to Lead. In this conversation, we talk about Lucy's own path to healthy eating. We go through a brief history of diets from low-fat, low-carb, Atkins, veg, organic, low-sugar, and keto. I ask Lucy about best practices from her Eat to Lead book. We get into the dynamic lifestyle roadmap and get the lowdown on fruit, carbs, protein, and fat. We discuss microbiome awareness, as well as her five-star restaurant secrets. Lastly, we hit on the emerging future of personalized wellness, longitudinal nutrition research, longevity, brain health, tech, and increased performance. Lucy, how are you doing today? Great. I'm doing great. How about you? Um, I am doing okay, but I've been editing videos all night, so I hope no one can see that. But uh, it's a tough life when you're a podcaster and uh, doing a lot of... This was actually training material, which I think you can sympathize with as a university yeah. person. It's a... There are a lot of chores. Yeah, the stuff you didn't imagine you'd be doing. Like with the podcast, you're editing videos. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff. I get it. So I wanted to talk about performance with you and performance foods. Um, Lucy, how did you get into this business of uh, food and performance? You, uh, I read your book, Eat to Lead. Um, g- give me a sense of how you got into this business. I, I mean, you're obviously educated uh, in this field, but you, you're also educated in business. So you have this dual background in, in kind of business and nutrition. Yeah. How, how, did this, how did you get here? Well, first of all, thanks for reading the book. I'm so pleased that you read it. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. And I, I do talk a little bit about it in the book, uh, but not a ton about how I got to writing the book. Um, Yes, I have dual experience, dual educations. Um, one is in health, physiology, and nutrition. The other one is in business. And I've kind of gone back and forth between the two and done them concurrently at the same time. So essentially, it's given me the same amount of experience and education in both. And I did think that I needed to write a book about it because um, it seemed, you know, for so many people, it's it's very complex. How do we make food and health match our lifestyle and uh, it can be really confusing and it was for me too so that's one thing I talk about is um, I actually did start off as a pre-med major in college and I did learn about health and I thought I learned a lot about the body at the time you know college education then I went into my first position early on in life in my early 20s was a leadership position working for the Department of Defense I had people uh, everyone was older than me, I believe, at that time that I was leading. Um, so you can imagine how challenging it was to be a leader, to be thrown into um, leading a huge group of people that were all very knowledgeable and experienced. And I was exhausted. Uh, and I was trying to eat right and, and take care of myself like I thought I had learned. And I just couldn't figure it out. Uh, sometimes I would get this teeny weeny glimpse of, you know, what it feels like to feel good and energized. And I would try to figure out what did I do 
to make that happen, you know? Uh, and it was difficult. It was too difficult for me. And so went back to school a little bit later on in life. I, I did everything that most people do. You know, you read magazines, you read books, you listen to experts, you know, and then you try to fit that in. But what we don't understand is that when we're doing that is we're getting little pieces of information from various opinions or um, aspects of what people understand or want to promote with health. And we're not getting the whole picture for ourselves. I like the personalized story and the personal approach that most people have to their a subject that they're you know that they care about and 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 that also becomes their profession because there's something authentic about it, right? You had you had the issue yourself, and now you're trying to figure it out and then share it with others. This idea of food as performance, though. It's out there, right? In culture, everyone says, you know, you are what you eat. And yet there are all of these diets everywhere. And I, you know, I, I was fascinated by that aspect of this book because you're sort of like the, the non, uh, you're the non book on the subject, right? In a certain sense. The non diet yes, book. <laughs> yeah, well, the non diet book, but you're sort of like, you're, you're kind of saying, you know, yes, we are on solid footing with some of this insight, but there's also so much stuff out there that doesn't have any bearing, you know, in terms of science, or at least it's like tilted science, or it's just twisted facts, or or it could even be, uh, like you point out, I mean, I don't know that you're, you know, giving people bad intentions, but there's just, why is there so much stuff out there that talks about food as if People really know what they're talking about. And then you kind of discover that they either don't or they just uh, are completely overblowing their claims. And, you know, part of your book is is about that. And then part of your book, I think, is about finding finding the narrow path through there. Because, you you know, eat to lead, you actually have a very strong thesis at the end of the day. Thank you. I think so. Too. Tell me more about that. Uh-huh. Okay, well, to answer that question about how is it that, you know, we get these varying aspects or ideas and, uh, yes, what are people thinking when they're putting out this information that isn't quite the right information or the best information? Well, there's two, I think there's two reasons, really. One is that sometimes people have just enough information to be dangerous. I'm sure you've heard that before. Mm-hmm. And the word expert is thrown around a lot now, right? So how are we an expert and who made us an expert, et cetera? And Google is an easy way to research these days. And so what is the research that someone has been doing? Uh, and we also get siloed. That's now a common term, right? We have our our silos of information. So if we keep going, if we're very passionate about a topic, and we believe we know the answer, we can easily go and find the research that proves that answer. Um, that's called cherry picking in science, right? Uh, and this is actually the, cl- the course that I'm teaching right now at San Jose State University. It's how to read research, how to understand research, and also how the media puts research out, and then go into that and see, is this a biased report, or you know, is it pretty straightforward? So... 
Yes, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just saying, I think the media has a very strange relationship with science because on the one hand, right, they're, they're, you know, the, the media kind of wants to be on the side of, of, of truth and they kind of sometimes uh, conflate truth and science, uh, which is also not you know, as simple as that, as, as you know. But on the other hand, they, they kind of run, they run after the same fads as, as others. I was just going to ask you a little bit about the brief history of diets, because I know, I know you've looked into it. Part of the book is a little bit about, you know, how throughout the last 30 years, right, it's been like, oh, low fat, low carb, low, low meat, high veg, organic everything, low sugar, keto diet. And, and this is just like the scratching the surface of, of, of diets. How did all of these things uh, get get going? Which, which ones have sort of done the most damage, would you say? Because I, I read your statement basically um, throughout the book as a anti, not only anti-diet, but sort of there are things we can know about this, uh, but diet in and of itself is a dangerous tool to apply that knowledge. Is that a fair characterization of, of one part of your position. Absolutely. I totally agree with that encompassing of um, my message. Yeah. But, but these history, you know, these historical diets. So some of them are, you know, celebrity proponents. Others are kind of doctors uh, in various forms turned into entrepreneurs typically. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see that? business of, of of selling diet books you must have a i guess a, an interesting relationship to that given that some people might read your book and say well you know you're in the history of of, of the trajectory of that same movement oh my gosh i know <laughs> how can you how can you put yourself both on the inside and on the outside of of this massive consumer trend which it is to care so much about what we eat that uh, we are willing to buy anything, listen to anything, do anything to, to hopefully improve you know, our life? First of all, this is a perfect question because um, the last question I said was twofold. And so you actually just led me into the second piece. You know, the first thing I said was you know, being siloed or just not enough information to make the whole picture. But this other section that you're talking about, um, a lot of it has to do with marketing. And by the way, I'm, I'm so pleased you brought it up because for me and writing this book, it was so difficult to walk the line of science, which really when you are brought up in the science uh, educational world, it's really about not having any inclinations. Wipe out your passions and just look at the data. And see, that's the only way you can see the clear data. But if you're passionate about this, you know, and showing everybody that this way that I found that I did that worked for me is the right way that everybody should be doing, you're not going to see the data clearly. <laughs> um, so that's science and that's boring. <laughs> if you don't have any passion in it, how do you tell people about it and get them on board and help them understand, but just get them interested in the first place, right? Then we have marketing on the other side which is almost the exact opposite of that, right? <laughs> yeah, and then there's food, I guess, and people in the middle who are some somewhat, I mean, it's, I guess, easy to understand how fascinating food is because 
you know, we're making all these judgments because we think we actually are the science in a certain sense. Right. Tell, tell us more about that because we, I want to get into some of the, your best practices uh, also, but just explain this process, how you have come to understand what individuals are, are, are doing around this. So there's either too much or too little information, but either way, whether we feel informed or not, we are certain, ah. right? There's this certainty around food, like... Um, there's this oscillation, I guess, also between certainty and like, oh, I have no idea. I need, I need expertise. Mm -hmm. But, but there's somehow this relationship where it's not like other domains of knowledge. It seems where you know you're you're seeking it out, and then you're like, oh, okay, that could be true. People just pick a position on food and mm -hmm. they run with it. Right. It's there's that passion piece we just talked about. So whatever it is hits, and that's the marketing piece too. It's like if you really get into marketing, which I have because I have that leadership business side as well. So I studied marketing significantly mm -hmm. and you get into the words that light people up or, you know, press people's buttons. You, I know what words they are, you know, and those words are never the scientific words, right? They're the, they're the emotion, emotive words. And so we get passionate about something when someone can press that button in us, can light that flashlight or that light bulb in our heads and go, make us go, I had that experience. I felt that way. That must be why. It doesn't actually even need to be backed by science. It just has to be backed by someone's story who had the same situation as you, who found the answer through this, mm. whatever it is they're proposing to you. So let's just for a brief second go into your your best practices. So you say eat to lead. That's the title of the book. Um, you have something called the dynamic lifestyle roadmap, um, and I want to ask you about that roadmap. Uh, and then, as part of the ingredients, I guess that you like. Um, not surprisingly, you seem to like fruit. But then you have this whole thing about carbs, which you think are misunderstood. I want to talk about carbs a little bit. And then yeah. you get into proteins, uh, good and bad. You get into fat. And, uh, and then lastly, I guess, into kind of microbiome awareness. That's a concept I was sort of picking up. So these are uh, elements of this dynamic lifestyle roadmap. So what kind of roadmap is this and, and how, how do we get there? Right. It's a dynamic roadmap because it's different for every human. And that's why it's really more of a pick these questions. There's a few questions I pose to everyone with each chapter. And I really want people to think about these questions for themselves and the food that they're eating and how they're feeling and the energy they're getting and the sleep they're getting, just how one or two foods are affecting that. And then jot some thoughts down, some observations down, and then you come up with your own personal conclusions about what's working and what's not working and what you might want to change based on your experiences. So that, and that's how we, you know, I have the structure for the roadmap, but then readers will fill that in and provide. So you want us to create with. food diaries? That's what you're saying. It's a little bit like that. Yeah. yeah. A little bit. So it's important enough that we, I mean, people usually spend their diary time on kind of the most important things that they experience in their, in, you know, in their day. And you think that in order to make any kind of reasonable progress on food, you you have to almost treat yourself as you're the scientist of your own body in a certain sense. Yeah, it's your own experiment on yourself. And we can't objectively 
analyze the data if we don't have any data. So there, right. you have to take some data because our memories, I mean, let's, let's be honest here. I mean, unless you eat the same thing, you know, every Wednesday, do you remember what you ate last Wednesday for dinner? Yes. So there is that aspect, but, but let me challenge you on this idea of, you know, using the N of one, which is yourself. Uh, I mean, in personalized medicine, there is this idea that, you know, some combination of you and science looking at you will come up with these personalized treatments, but surely we're not really there. So I'm looking at myself and I look at my eating and let's say I even wrote down what I ate and I have tried, right, to write these down using apps and other things. At least the style of app that I tried, it got very time consuming to jot down. And the point there was calories. So you're like, you're always hunting for calories. You're like, oh, I ate a meal. I must have eaten 500 calories. And then after a while, you're like, okay, I think I have it down. Like, there's a pattern here. This is more or less what I'm eating. But then it gets hard to really get to deeper insight because either it's just too hard to keep tracking and you keep veering off these things, or you start really questioning whether this app knows what they're talking about or, or even if the food really is accurate. Because any, any of the calorie counting that I've ever done, there's so many errors in this system. Okay. So I'm just trying to say... How is just writing down what you eat going to get you there? G give us a, a better sense of how this works for you. Yeah. Uh, well, you can use an app, of course, because some people are really attracted to that technology. But the thing really is to, just like research, is to focus on one thing at a time. So I think what happens, what you're talking about when an app gets so intricate and time consuming, et cetera, is that we go into the app and we're recording all of our meals, which is great. And I don't think we should do that. We don't need to do that for months at a time, although some people enjoy it. We can do it for seven or 10 days and get a good idea, whatever. Or I also talk in the book about just pick one thing you want to look at. So let's start right now with, you know, the amount of vegetables you're eating every day. How many vegetables in servings, which I make easy as well, <laughs> because servings are all over the place. If you use an app, it'll be like, well, for leafy greens, it's a whole cup. And for something more solid, it's a half cup or you don't, we don't care about that. <laughs> I just want to, you know, in the form of a handful or a cup worth or a large vegetable, how many are you eating a day? And then go from there. And when you eat vegetables at lunch, do you feel a different kind of energy throughout the day? Does your food last longer? Does your energy last longer? you know, into the evening. So simplify, simplify. And that is what research does too. When we have a research study, no one study can look at everything. <laughs> and that's unfortunately what kind of media has conditioned us to think, oh, there was this one study that came out. So it means that everything has changed. Nothing is the same that we thought when really studies are all about like, let's pick this one teeny weeny part of this big problem and let's look at just it. And then we'll find out if it reacts with this other things. And then someone else can do another study and pick another part. And that's, and then, you know, you're not. so right. And, and I think even scientists uh, sometimes, or people who have studied science, I mean, I find myself being quite critical uh, to things I read. But I will admit that sometimes if I need something in an argument and, or, or like in a discussion, and I have read a study, 
even if it has nothing to do with my field, maybe I haven't even read this study, which is horrible. I've just read a headline about a study. I will use it for like colloquial uh, benefit of mine and completely misuse the science. It, it, it happens. You're not alone. It's crazy. <laughs> everybody <'cause> does it. <laughs> everybody does it, but that's, that's how this thing gets corrupted. Right. Yes. And, and just kudos to you for saying that and observing that in yourself right now. I mean, that's huge. And you're right in that so many people just read the headline. Don't even look down below because ob obviously, maybe not so obvious, media does that all the time. They put a headline out there that makes you think one thing, but then when you read just a few paragraphs down, they're really talking about something else. But, but here's something that bothers me with food research. So unless you're a nutritionist, or even then, there are so many studies that go in opposite directions. And, you know, of course, that's normal in science. Scientists are trained to deal with that. But it seems to me that there's this combination of, of like, there's always studies that go in, the op in opposite directions. And, and also, history has sort of shown that even... If many scientists, you know, when they were looking at uh, food, were going in one direction, they happened to not always be right. Or, you know, let's say the sugar issue throughout history, right? So it turns out that mm, it was a more, much more complicated history that we have had with sugar. It was kind of undercommunicated. There was certain forces that weren't so happy with us figuring it out. So it's it's not just as straightforward. It's not like science says, and you know, and there's people speaking on behalf of science. Um, how are we to know that in 2021, we have a perfect, like if you go into the literature, which, which you have done, are you confident that what science currently says about food and nutrition is anywhere close to what we're going to say five or ten years from now. Haha. <laughs> right? Um, I love that question. It's a great question. Um, and I will say yes, we know a lot. This is not the first time I've had this question, and it, because it is scary, and it does look like, oh my gosh, how much do we think we know now? And like a couple of years later, it's going to be 180 degree different, you know. But Am I wrong about that? Has it has there not been any 180s in in the history of of discussing kind of ingredients like take sugar, take carbs, take fat, even take protein? I mean, you describe some of those shifts yourself, mm -hmm. but you're saying they're mostly not 180, or or you know the scientific community hasn't gone 180. Yeah, it's more like the excesses. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So that's really, I would like to change. The trajectory or maybe the the natural presence of how people look at science and, and nutrition information today that's really what I'm trying to do here I remember mm -hmm. my grandmother cooking uh, I don't remember exactly what it was but it was like she felt so bad when studies came out about cholesterol and eggs and she had fed her kids eggs almost every day for breakfast and she was just like I killed my kids. They're going to have heart disease, you know? <laughs> right. And then every, nobody ate eggs for a really long time, right? Now we're back to eating eggs because uh, we're finding out the cholesterol in eggs is not so bad after all. So, Well, that's what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Th th this gets really personal. I mean, right? Mm -hmm. 
I, I, I would agree. I think m- my mother as well, you know, she was even educated in sort of, uh, you know, how to, you know, for, for her age, what, what, what was, you know, in the 60s, what, what was the state of the art of, of nutrition? And then when she much later realized that some of that, you know, wasn't true, it is shocking. Right. Because you have spent so much time trying to do the best for your kids. And this yeah. is naturally how this thing starts. And, and similarly, I would like to do the same. But when we don't know, how do you deal with that? And that's what I want to talk about. And I think the word maybe is paradigm that I'm working to change with people and how we understand nutrition. So the book really does lead you through this kind of a story of observing how all foods have good components, natural food, that is, all foods that man was made to eat have something in it that we gain from it. And so how do we eat all of those foods we're supposed to eat that give us the complete nutrition, not just for our body, but for our mind to have optimal energy and be working long term so that we have a high quality of life long into the future. Uh, so there's that. And then what we have to get out of is looking at these teeny little swings in science. Oh, yes. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Oh, no. And if we just recognize all of the good components of natural foods and eat them for that reason, we don't have to worry about the swings because that's really what the swings are about. They're about the small little things um, that oftentimes have to do with man-made foods now, right? High sugar, high fat is kind of like a a result of how we're doing our animal products these days, etc. So if we keep it natural, we keep it what we know has worked for us for not just centuries, but thousands of years, <laughs> we're going to be okay. And we vary. We need to vary the foods. If, of course, if you eat eggs every morning and then something happens, let's, let's not even say we find something out about eggs. Let's just say we find something out about our egg producing system, you know, that something got in there and now like all the eggs are contaminated. We don't know how long we've been, and we've been eating eggs for every, every morning. Well, now we have a problem, right? But if you're varying your foods, you don't have as much of a problem. I like that message a lot, but I want to understand more about when you say natural, Mm-hmm. And let's throw organic in there. And I don't know if, I don't know if you distinguish. They, they are two kind of somewhat separate things. What do you mean by natural? Because nature is maybe the, to me at least, maybe the most cultural construct mm-hmm. ever. In the mm-hmm. sense that, what to me at least, what has been natural has changed so much. Mm. So when you say natural, what do you? Can you just be very specific? What, what is natural food versus non-natural food? What, what, what does it, it mean to you to call a food natural? The closest that it is to how it was when it was alive, when it came out of the ground, when it was living, that's natural. After we start adding things to it, combining things with it, processing it, then it becomes less and less natural, obviously. So there's a spectrum of what's natural and what's not, but uh, you can... The most natural food possible is what I'm talking about. Hmm. So, but that includes obviously allowing for human agriculture. Like we have grown different crops, and they have changed throughout uh, the ages. And because there are people who are much more extreme on that end, right? They claim that certain types of grain were never really supposed to be eaten, and like you can take this very far if you say 
natural wellness is what I care about and, and it has to be natural and nothing foreign should come into my body. Mm. How extreme, I mean, you seem to me like most of your message is balance. Yeah. Don't, yeah, it's not extreme. Yeah. Right. So, w- would you, for exceptional reasons, eat processed food, even with what you know today? Oh, sure. And I do <laughs> because not on a regular basis, but I also believe in taking advantage of the um, advancements that we've made through science, right? So, if I'm on the highway and I, you know, on this long drive and I didn't pack enough food and I need something, otherwise, I'm going to start to get dizzy and possibly get into an accident, you know, I'm going to get something. And if it has to be processed at this time, I'm going to pick the absolute best possible quality processed food. (laughs) And there are times, do I eat sweets? Absolutely. Um, I'm a reformed sweet tooth, (laughs) but yes, I like Tell me more about that because that's a big kind of dichotomy in the uh, diet literature. I'm a big sweet tooth and uh, I have converted to mostly eating dark chocolate, but I think the amounts of dark chocolate are probably not healthy. But but tell, tell me, tread lightly is like one of your phrases, I think, even in the, in, in the book. Does that also mean, you know, even if you have a sweet tooth and even if you eat things that are processed, as long as they're minimal parts of your diet, you, you're not really a believer in, in kind of denying people the the accidental kind of food product that they crave. <laughs> right. No, because that creates worse problems in the future. I mean, one if one likes chocolate and one withholds from chocolate for a long time, what happens? Well, our desire for chocolate grows stronger and stronger until we can't stand it anymore. And then most of the time people just binge, you know, splurge, binge, eat it for days or whatever, eat mounds of it, you know, it's when they finally get there. So just from experimental science in psychology and food, as well as my experience with my clients, it seems that, you know, if you allow yourself a little bit, then you can be satisfied with that. And you also don't have that brain game that you're playing with yourself. I can never have this. I can never have this again. Oh my God, this is, you know, this is hurts. It's painful. Talk to me a little bit about brains because you do claim eat to lead, which implies that leaders should be conscious, I guess, about what they're eating. But perhaps there's also an assumption in there that uh, says, you know, leaders uh, can perform better, can maybe then at the end of the day live longer, or at least their brain can function better in the here and now. I don't know how far you want to you wanna go, but tell us what you can expect out of eating right. Like what kind of differential are we talking about? Are we talking about a 1% improvement uh, in my everyday happiness? Or are we talking about, you know, tangible improvements in performance at work? Or are you talking about longevity? What, what are some of the promises that, uh, you know, haven't been debunked yet? And, you know, you're, you're sort of sticking with uh, fairly provable um, benefits uh, of, of eating right. Yes. If you really get down to some really healthy habits that I discuss in the book, I mean, I do talk about t- small steps, just a little bit here and there, and then it all builds. And then over years, literally, you get better and better if you care about it. It's not about 
changing your diet like 100% like we just talked about tomorrow because that's too difficult. It doesn't stick. There are reasons why you have your habits, reasons why you have your patterns. So uh, what I'm saying though is if you get down to being really pretty good at eating the healthiest possible foods for you, you will feel completely different from when you, if you were much more of a restaurant, fast food eater, junk food eater, 100% different. And the difference is in, I, I know I speak of energy in a broad term. It's definitely body, physical energy in terms of being able to get up and move. And it's absolutely mental energy. It's the ability to produce ideas and creativity and be innovative because your brain is working on good fuel as well. It's also the ability to be happy. We There's so much like I can't dive too deeply into the book because otherwise it would be this dictionary, you know, <laughs> size thing. But the, we found out so much right now about the microbiome, the gut microbiome has to do with serotonin, which is a feedback loop between the brain and the gut in terms of how much serotonin do we have in, in our body at any given time. Serotonin is known to help us to be happy, to be relaxed. So yeah, food is going to affect your mood, it's gonna, which ultimately affects your outlook on life, on your work, on people, whether or not you can be patient with people when they need your patience, listen to them when you need to listen, whether or not you can focus with them and hear what they're saying when they're talking to you and then go back and do something about it, make good decisions because you still have energy after that, you know, and then you have longer days because if you understand how to create a meal that creates energy that lasts longer, you don't have energy dips. And then you have a nice even keeled energy that goes right through dinner into the evening so you could spend time with your family or social life or read or anything like that. And then it affects your sleep. And sleep affects everything else or everything as well. Sleep affects how much energy we have, how our body recovers, how our mind recovers from the day before. So I'm just skimming the surface here. <laughs> uh, but, but all this comes together in, in a big way. So how do you in practice work with people to get this message out? So you're, you're writing a book, you work with individual clients and you have them write diaries and, and reflect about their, their, you know, around their own life and their, their food habits and, and, and other things. But, um, you know, by and large, where is the future of, of food heading? Are you, are you kind of predicting a return to this idea of the natural or uh, because I see a lot of other things happening too, you know, synthetic biology, manipulation of food. Um, and, you know, is that necessarily all bad? The fact that we're developing artificial ways to feed ourselves. I mean, at some point in the future, unless we go in a different direction, we're going to need to have those technologies available uh, is it all bad that we're developing, you know, synthetic ways of uh, of feeding ourselves? Mm. Uh, well, I'm going to stick with my point about believe, about the fact that eating what's most natural is always going to be best for us. And also, if there's a time that we need to eat something that's not as natural in order to survive, in order to keep going, that's appropriate. Um, so look, I'm, I actually do stand with those who say if we eat more plants in general, you know, plants equals beans, equals rice, equals 
grains equals vegetables equals fruit. What's left? Meat. <laughs> right? So we should be eating more plants no matter what. It's just a, like they're more of a part of the natural human diet. And that is better for the environment and it's better for our bodies in general. And so processing, what we're doing now is all like the most popular thing that's going on is processing plants to taste like meat. <laughs> so why not just start to put more plants into our diet and get the big, huge benefits that come out of that? I mean, we're talking not just antioxidants and vitamins and minerals, but phytochemicals and other things in plant food that we're still discovering that were meant to be part of our bodies that actually help to create a younger, more vibrant mind and body, face and skin. You know, uh, they're magic miracle foods, maybe. Um, are they just what we were meant to eat for optimal vitality and energy? Yes. <laughs> hmm. So when people come to you, you have this message of balance. I would, I would say that your promises are slightly less kind of extravagant and life-changing than a lot of other diet books that really I mean, you speak about increased energy, and you, you know there are all of these benefits, but you speak about it in a very measured way. I, I for at least for me, the audience of one that I, you know, you have right here on the podcast, this resonates with me. What what are you uh, picking up? You know, in what how, what has their reception of the book been in in terms of who is resonating with your audience? Is it kind of more of an educated? Uh, suburban crowd that reads this, or is it a completely different crowd than than, than you know a reading a typical diet book? Do you have any any views on on who you're actually reaching? Yes, I think I do. I've had some presentations where people would buy the book and then uh, come back to me and ask to talk to me a little bit about it. And of course, it's called Eat to Lead, so there's a certain kind of human that would pick up that book. Someone who wants to get further in life and their career, you know, is kind of wants to investigate uh, what they're doing and or in order to make themselves better. So those are the types of people that are, are reading. I, I don't know about a demographic. I do want to say that I really was hoping to get a large demographic of people in terms of, um, we might say, financial status or um, social status or, or any of the culture. I, I really did want to be able to, to have this book be read by any of those because, and you might be able to see that I was trying not to lean one culture or another. Basically it's U.S. <laughs> you know, in general, if you live in the U.S., this is kind of what you're experiencing. But mm. other than that, I hope anyone could pick it up. You have this thing that runs throughout your book where you are sharing five-star restaurant secrets. First off, mm -hmm. how did you come upon such five-star secrets? And then what do, you, what do you mean by that? Thanks for asking. That's cool. Uh, okay. Well, when I, was, when I went back to school to study nutrition and food science, uh, there were a lot of courses I needed to take that I wasn't really interested in. <laughs> and some of them were literally kind of uh, being a chef and some of them were running a kitchen. Uh, at the time I thought, oh my gosh, okay, I'll take it because I have to. But funny enough, that's what went into these five-star secrets. It's like what tastes good on the palate and what looks good on the plate. And I just like a lot of people, I like going to restaurants to have interesting, different, tasty, creative foods. Um, and 
like to watch the chef shows as well. And they repeat back what I learned. So I just got a lot of reinforcement about what works on a plate and what the human mind and tongue and even digestive system responds to positively. And so I think that's really what we need to look at when we're putting our plate together. We need to look at satisfaction, not just fuel. I mean, we can't ignore the fact that we love taste. We love to eat things that make us light up inside and feel good. So you're not going to give me a, a, you know, a diet here? Never, is it possible to distill? Is it possible, even though we have talked for at length about personalization, you, you, you do recommend fruit and vegetables, mm-hmm. less meat, some flexibility. Mm-hmm. A little what bit about, of fat. You know, right what about carbs fat. and protein and, and, and fat? Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's the status there? We need all of them. Carbs, protein, and fat are the three major, that's why they call them macronutrients. They're the nutrients that give us calories, yet we can't avoid it. Calories are the measurement of fuel by which our body runs. So those are the three. And everybody then has different amounts that they need. That's why one can't really give anyone a diet. It's just too personal. But we can start somewhere And we can realize that these are the things we can eat too much of and maybe cut down in areas that we are realizing we are eating too much of. We can also narrow down in the sense of taking away the junk. There's a lot of junk in carbs. That's why low-carb diets are so popular right now. When we take out carbohydrates, we're not eating potato chips. We're not eating cake. We're not eating cookies. We're not eating candy. We're not eating jam. We're like, we're not eating donuts. I mean, carbs are junk. I mean, I'm sorry, junk food is carbs, but it's very unfair to say that all carbs are bad because fruits and vegetables are carbs and very healthy whole grains are carbs. And, uh, and, and carbohydrates are what provide us with immediate energy. So if you're hungry and you're having to crash right now, What's going to help you to come back up is some carbohydrates. And that's why, you know, traditionally in the past, diabetics, you know, what what do diabetics take when they're having a hypoglycemic incident? They take orange juice, which is kind of simple carbohydrate. You know, now it's recommended to have a sandwich, but uh, we need to get to that place where we're not at a crash so we don't have to have those simple carbs. What about the sugar story? For for us who are sweet tooths, I mean, I try with my oatmeal to add honey or, uh, you know, maple syrup or whatever you have, but there's no getting around sugar as such, is there? Or, or, or are you just mostly concerned about processed sugar in the white uh, category? Is there no positive story even five, ten years from now? We're not going to get a reversal of this. Uh, suddenly we find that all of our sweet tooths, it had a function after all. There was a reason we were eating all these sweets and it was actually not that bad. I mean, do you? is there any scenario under which that could be true? Absolutely. I write about it too a little bit. Um, we, there's a reason for us wanting sugar and, and the simplest forms of sugar get into our blood the fastest and bump up our blood glucose, which is energy. So if our blood, blood glucose is low, 
and we're feeling less optimal. We can't think as well. Some people cry. Some people get moody, angry, sad. You know, um, then that sugar is going to help immediately. And sugar is also, or simpler sugars, are well known for helping people in athletic events or sports or exercise. If you haven't eaten in a while, you are not going to do as well um, with low blood sugar. As if your if your blood sugar is is where it should be. So sometimes athletes know, okay, I haven't eaten in in four hours. I'm going to go do this like hour and a half long exercise event or athletic event. I need to boost my blood sugar, and that's when it'll be eaten. It also can be eaten after an event if you're not going to get a meal afterwards to bump that up. So you again don't have a crash in mental or physical energy. So it's like a tool, just like everything else. If you know how to use it, and I'll say. A lot of times, um, from my observation, this hasn't been scientifically proven, but I see that people want something sweet after dinner because that blood sugar from dinner hasn't been elevated yet. So you want that dessert because you haven't gotten that increase. Give it a little time. That's why a lot of times after you've digested a bit, you might not want dessert anymore. Also, if you've had a well-rounded meal, you might not want dessert in the first place because you might have what I explain as a combination of simpler carbs and more complex carbs that'll give you a quicker boost and a longer boost so it covers the whole time period. Last word, what uh, is your very simplest advice? What is the culmination of all of this writing and thinking? If... Uh, People want to get more information. Where should they go and what th should they think about if you have kind of one takeaway? One takeaway is um, everything in moderation, the most natural foods possible, and you'll be doing really well. Everything. We need to eat that whole gamut, that whole broad spectrum of foods, mostly plants. And where to go for more is eattolead.com. I have actually, I'm, I'm putting together a course that I'll be starting next month in March. So people can read the book with me and we can, we're going to meet once a week and go through these things and talk about our observations and help people to be setting goals and be accountable for reaching them. And ideally people will have some solid progress and really feel a difference after six weeks or so. Well, thank you so much for uh, letting me in on the backstory around the book. I hope we can check in maybe after a little bit to see if the story changes, because it seems like a story that's ever-changing, but you have found a good balance. And I think this is uh, certainly resonating with me. I would love to eat to lead, and uh, I'm going to reflect more about the messages in the book. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thanks for having me. You have just listened to episode 87 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was performance food. In this conversation, we talked about Lucy's own path to healthy eating. and We went through a brief history of diets from low-fat, low-carb, Atkins, veg, organic, low-sugar to keto. I asked Lucy about best practices from her Eat to Lead book. We got into the dynamic lifestyle roadmap and got the lowdown on fruit, carbs, protein, and fat. We discussed microbiome awareness as well as her five-star restaurant secrets. 
Lastly, we hit on the emerging future of personalized wellness, longitudinal nutrition research, longevity, brain health, tech, and increased performance. My takeaway is that performance food is not here yet, but it will be. When it is, hopefully the lessons can be shared widely. For now, we have precursors like Lucy, who are inviting each of us to be more mindful of what we eat and watch the results closely. Clearly, positive effects can be had, but we still don't fully understand the cause and effect. Nutrition is indeed a topic for the future. We should eat to lead. That's a great aspiration. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode two on the future of beverages, episode 36 on the future of cultured meat, or episode 80 on the future of personal development. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.